Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Skinnerd Reconsidered, the podcast where why is always a vowel. And guess what? We're back now for real. I know it's been a long, long time since I have released episodes on a regular basis. Well, get ready. We're going to do it now. The final season of Skinnerd Reconsidered. We are going to discuss the final album by Leonard Skinnerd called Street Survivors. And one thing I want to do for this final season is a lot of bonus episodes. Maybe alternate those with the proper song episodes. I have some fun stuff planned, a lot of great guests. You will get to say goodbye to the entire beloved Skinnerd Reconsidered family. So why not start with the fun episode today? A great way to kick off the final season. Our guest is Alan Paul. Alan Paul is without a doubt the number one Allman Brothers scholar and author in the world. For years, he's written music articles on many bands for pretty much every magazine you've ever heard of. He's written for The New Yorker, Wall Street Journal, People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, you name it. He was also managing editor of Guitar World. On top of all that, he wrote a book called One Way Out, The Inside History of the Allman Brothers Band, which was released in 2014 and became a New York Times bestseller. He was an Allman Brothers insider at this point, which we will discuss shortly. So how could he possibly follow that up? Well, he wrote a book called Texas Flood, The Inside History of Stevie Ray Vaughan. And guess what? Another New York Times bestseller. So what now? Alan Paul has written the book Brothers and Sisters that comes out on July 25th. And that's what we'll discuss today. You clever listeners might have surmised that the book Brothers and Sisters is about the Allman Brothers Band album called Brothers and Sisters, but it's about a lot more than that. It's about Southern rock, its impact on the culture at the time, and there is a lot of great Leonard Skinner content. Alan was nice enough to send me the book in advance, and it's excellent. I think you guys will really enjoy the book, so buy it on July 25th, wherever you can buy books. And listen, you can't do an entire Skinnerd podcast without talking about the Allman Brothers Band. These are the two legendary Southern rock bands. You think of one, you think of the other. And Alan Paul knows a ton about both. So let's turn it up. Welcome to Skinnerd Reconsidered. Very excited to have you here. Can't wait to talk some Almond Brothers and some Skinnerd with you. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, really happy to talk about my book, of course. And this is a side of the book that I feel like is mostly being overlooked by people, that there is discussion about the Almond Brothers' relation to uh, Southern Rock and Leonard Skinner and Marshall Tucker Band. 
especially, and some others, but those are the two that get mentioned the most. And, uh, you know, the Allman Brothers band came to not like the term Southern rock. And so I think some of their fans came to not like the term. And um, so it's not a theme of the book, but it is a theme of, it's not the theme of the book, but it's a theme of the book. And I think it's uh, important and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, it's definitely in there. You've got some great Skinner content that I want to get into with you. And yeah, it's not just about the Allman Brothers band and their recording of this album brothers and sisters but it's also about the context of the time and the cultural impact of southern rock uh, but before we get too far into that and before we get into your new book you wrote an Almond brothers band book uh, several years ago called one way out so could you tell us a little bit about what, what's the scope of that one before we get into the new one yeah one way out the inside history of the Almond brothers band is a complete uh history of the Allman Brothers in oral history format, which means it's all quotes, uh, blocks of quotes with, of course, interstitial prose uh, introductions and in between parts that I wrote. Um, it covers the whole band, uh, basically from its formation, a little bit before its formation. So there was some history to who each of the people were uh, until luckily in the paperback version, the very end, their last show, which I was at October 28th, 2014 at the Beacon Theater. The original hardcover of the book came out uh, in 2014, just as they were beginning their final year, basically. Um, and then I was able to go to every show they performed except one in their final year and write an extra chapter for the paperback. It's, it's always nice to have something new in the paperback, but it was really unusual and lucky for me that that extra thing happened to be literally their last year. So I, I literally it's from the beginning to the end of the band um, and all based on my interviews. Um, and that's different than brothers and sisters, which focuses basically on 1971 to 76. So the way I look at it, of course, it's a little bit before again, to give context to who everyone is, but it's basically the story of the band from when Dwayne died until they broke up the first time in 1976. And there were a lot of my interviews in it, but it's not all my interviews. I did a lot of research, a lot of newspaper, magazine, and book uh, articles and books. And also, uh, I was gifted the most wonderful gift. Uh, I, I'll say the Almond Brothers band fans were gifted the most wonderful gift, really, because um, it enlivened the book so much. Uh, Kirk West, who's the famous to Almond Brothers fans, uh, tour mystic, who was with the band from 1989 when they reformed until 2010 when he retired from the road as their tour manager, tour mystic, photographer, archivist, historian, uh, guide to everything and liaison between band and fans. Um, he, in 1986 and 87, when the band was retired or, or broken up, um, did interviews with everyone. He was going to write a book. Then he never had written the book. They reformed. He was working for the band. So it never got written. He gave me all his interviews, hundreds of hours on cassette tapes. And it nice. was a yeah, heck of a job to get them digitized, listened to and put into the book. Um, but a really cool job and uh, made all the difference in the world. So that that's one big difference also in this book is that I had access to these incredible interviews. Yeah, I'm sure that was incredibly valuable to you. And, and that's such a gift. But how long did it take you to listen to these tapes? I mean, I'm sure it was exciting and interesting, but it had to be a bit of a slog as well. Yes, it was it was it was exciting, interesting, and a slog <laughs> all at the same time. <laughs> and sometimes in the middle of a sloggy, you know, because you know, the one thing that made it a little easier for me is that Kirk, for the most part in these interviews, went pretty linear. 
So, you know, he kept them pretty linear. So I could find the sections that I was really interested in pretty quickly. Um, so that was my initial thought as I would do that. But of course, when you've got six hours or more of interviews, say with Greg Allman, and he was so open and he was talking to Kirk in a way that, I mean, I did a lot of great interviews with Greg. Uh, some of them were, were wonderful, um, but he had this familiarity with Kirk and the band was broken up and they weren't extremely political. They were a bit wistful about what they had lost. And they talked about each other with a kind of open heartedness and open mindedness that I think was not always there when they were back together and getting on each other's nerves again <laughs> um, in various ways. And so um, I, sometimes I would think, well, I'll just find the relevant sections of these interviews and then eventually go back and listen to them all. Um, I, I didn't listen to every minute of every interview, although I, I, I did, I'd say, with the band members. And I'm sure to the day I die, I'll keep dipping back into the interviews and finding things and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't get that in the book. Um, I've already done that, even with interviews that I did listen to that somehow I, you know, I, they, they were so overwhelming that I was sometimes looking for something particular and I missed something else that became relevant Um two months after I had listened to that tape and I hadn't quite realized it. So um, that there was an embarrassment of riches, but uh, one other really cool thing for those who like to listen to audiobooks, um, we use some clips from that interview and also from some of my own interviews with Greg and, and the other guys um, in the audiobook. So it's pretty cool. You can be listening along to the audiobook and suddenly hear, uh, Greg, you know, and um, in fact, I wish if I had thought of it, I would have thrown a clip from Gary Rosington in too. I'll, I'll find a place to do that on my uh, Substack, Alan Paul <laughs> Substack blog. I'll post some of my interview with Gary. Um, yeah, just to double back to since we're talking, you know, it's the Skinner podcast. Um, I've interviewed Gary, you know, for I since I started at Guitar World in 1991 because they knew I was a Skinner and Almond Brothers guy from the you know day I began. Um, I interviewed Gary. One of the first things I did at Guitar World when I was hired was a cover story for Guitar School, which was then our sister magazine called Leonard Skinner 1991 when they had first reformed. I flew down to Jacksonville and went to a hotel and interviewed uh, Gary, Ed, Leon Wilkinson and Randall Hall, who was uh, in the band then. And um, it was great. I interviewed Gary many, many times after that. And one blessing of this book is that um, it gave me an excuse to interview Gary again. I got on the phone and had a really good talk with him. So there's a fresh interview with Gary in here um, that was really valuable. And um, obviously, I had no way of knowing at that time that he was going to pass away in, I guess, about a year from then. So, um, But I, I was really happy to get some new information. Yeah, and that's actually how you and I came to know each other. A little bit on Twitter is that you wrote a, I thought a great tribute to Gary Rossington that was in, was a guitar player magazine or? Yeah, uh, that was in Guitar World. Guitar World, right. And I could tell that there was kind of that personal connection that you had with him. You had some some interviews that you had, con you had conducted with him. So it wasn't just kind of the standard, you know, Wikipedia type uh, remembrance that I've, yeah. I've seen so many times since Gary died. So I really appreciated that article. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I had, I had a good relationship with Gary. Um, I didn't know him personally super well, the way I came to know some of the guys from the Allman Brothers. Um, I only really met and talked to Gary in person a couple of times, but uh, most of our interviews were on the phone, um, but many, many times on the phone, and a couple of really memorable ones in person, including uh, one, it probably was in 1992 or so. Uh, I did one with uh, Zach Wild. And Gary and Ed King, 
Um, you know, we, we do a lot of those at Guitar World where we'd have people interview their heroes, uh-huh. and I knew how much Zach loves Skinner. So um, I hooked that up and I I conducted the whole thing. And I don't know exactly when Ed left the band. Um, it, it would help me date it, but it was it was probably 92. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was great. And you know, Gary appreciated uh the way I approach things, always coming from the music. And he liked to talk about the Allman Brothers with me. And um, you know, I, I I appreciated and admired Gary as a person and a guitar player. Yeah, of course. So that's one thing I've been thinking about leading up to this discussion with you is kind of the many similarities and differences between the Allman Brothers band and Leonard Skinnerd. They have a lot in common, but to me, their music sounds pretty different. You've got the Allmans who are coming from more of just the blues rock with, with the jazz stylings as well, especially with J-Mo on the drums. You know, of course, they would they would do the extended jams where Skinnerd was a very precise band. Even if you heard a long solo from them, it was they'd practice it a million times and there was no improvisation. How does it seem to you as far as just musically the similarities and differences between the two bands? Well, I mean, everything you said is is true. I mean, if you if you just think about their backgrounds and some of the stuff that went into it, it's 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 it it becomes more clear. Let's just for instance, let's start with Dwayne. Um, you know, Dwayne recorded with King Curtis, with Aretha Franklin, with Wilson Pickett, uh, and then of course also with Eric Clapton. And you know, he was he he was capable. But of of playing in that really precise way, uh, he could have done that. I, I'm I'm certain he could have rehearsed everything and played it just that way. But it sure. wasn't really where his foot was. Um, it, it's Skinner, you know, and, and Gary and I talked about this. In fact, in the last interview, they their first influences very much included uh, Dwayne and Greg when they were in the Almond Joys. Um, also, and I think people know about that. I think people sometimes forget that they were also really influenced by the Second Coming, which was Barry Oakley and Dickie Betts's band. Because uh, when the Almond Joys eventually moved out to Los Angeles and became Hourglass, uh, Dickie and Barry and Second Coming were in Jacksonville, and they were becoming one of the most popular bands in Jacksonville. So, of course, if you think about it, uh, Gary and Alan and Ronnie were going to see them. Of course, they were. So they were tremendously influenced by them because seeing someone who's sort of like you, just a few years older, and standing in front of them, I think anyone could relate, has a different impact. Than, I mean, I'm sure a Dominican baseball player is more impacted by, by you know, a, a kid in the Dominican Republic seeing uh, Fernando Tatis or something is going to be more inspired than he is if he sees an American guy from California. It's just natural that that would be the case. And so I think that that is the case with uh, guys in Skinner. They were really influenced by being able to stand in front of them. I mean, for them as kids, and remember, Dwayne was only a few years older than them, really. And to stand in front of him and see what he could do and then say with Dickie Betts was incredibly influential and impactful. But it's not exactly where their heart was musically. Um, that came very much from free, especially, yeah. I mean, especially with Gary more than anyone. Um, he was very open about that always that Paul Kossoff was sort of his number one hero. So, um, and there's no reason to, that it can't be both and all of the above. And, and Alan Collins, of course, I, I never got to interview, um, but his playing was also coming from more of a, a, a rock direction clearly um than what the Almeros were doing and and i think one of the things that always separated skinner and i discuss this in the book is that you had those guys doing that you know gary was with this sort of crunchy rock thing alan with the more 
fleet fingered yeah. uh, rock thing. And then Ronnie well, just was a great songwriter. And that's a similarity to the, to the Allman Brothers and to the Grateful Dead. I mean, these are very different bands, but they all sustained and became what they became because they had this great catalog of songs. And, uh, you know, that's why we love Leonard Skinner. That's why we love the Allman Brothers. I mean, the jamming is fantastic, but, you know, they also wrote Midnight Rider and Blue Sky. And, yeah, exactly. You know. That's what matters. Yeah, that's what holds simple. up. Yeah. Yeah, that's why, you know, and, and so, uh, but their songwriting process, I think, was quite different. Um, Ronnie, of course, didn't play music. And so most of his songs, I think all of his songs were collaborations with one of the guitar players. Right. Um, I think most Gary, but um, not exclusively Gary. And that's just natural because he was a singer. But he was obviously this great um, poet, but he wasn't really a poet. I, I think of Ronnie almost as a short story writer. I mean, the, those songs were like little stories, and, and that's why they resonated with people, and he was so good at it. And it seems that he was a natural. I mean, from everything Gary ever told me, or and I've read it anywhere else, he just drove around and wrote it in his head. Um, you know, Dickie Betts and Greg Allman, who were the primary songwriters for the Allman Brothers, of course, were instrumentalists. And so they did tend to write things on their own with the guitar or in Greg's case, sometimes a piano. Um, and, and so the process was a little bit different. Um, but both of them were rooted in the songs. And and Ronnie, it seems pretty clear to me, um, was really into country. I mean, his song, his his vocal style and his songwriting has so much country influence. Um and that's one of the reasons that there started to be a little more similarity in this era that we're talking about with the Almond Brothers um, when Dickie Dickie came to more prominence. Yeah, Ramblin' Man, you know, it's a song that that I guess could have been, you know, Skinner could have done it. Um, they would have done it differently. But, you know, it's it's not that dis distant in, in a way or even southbound, I would say, is, mm -hmm. you know, fits into that uh, genre. There was a little bit more coming together. So I think Dickie had some more. Not to say he was the same at all. They're still very different people and musicians. But um, the similarity to, with Dickie uh, and Skinner, I think, is more pronounced than it is with Greg or Dwayne Allman. Yeah, I can see that. And Dickie Betts, in some ways, is kind of a combination of of Gary and Ronnie. Gary, of, the, of all the Skinner guitarists, he played the most clean, precise, melodic licks, similar to Dickie Betts. And then, of course, Ronnie, like you said, was hugely influenced by Merle Haggard and country music. And that came out and certainly in his lyrics, but uh, also in the music as well. Um, yeah, I think so. And one of the things that that is fascinating and, and several people who read this, including my agent, uh, questioned me and didn't believe it because I said the only time that the bands played together uh, in this era and really of the original Skinner, the only time they played together was in August of 1974 at the, the at, at Atlanta uh, Fulton County Stadium. And it is hard to believe that they didn't play together more, but they didn't. And uh, one of the roots of that was that their managers uh, were brothers, Phil Walden and Alan Walden, and they hated each other. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a real failing, I would say. I mean, without getting into the personalities of Alan and Phil or knowing who was right or wrong, you know, Phil Walden had his record company, uh, Capricorn Records. He had this huge conflict of interest in that he had the record company and the publishing company and that he was the manager of the band. Um, but he, you know without him setting this template of recording guys like the Allman Brothers and the Marshall Tucker Band and allowing them to stay down in the South, there probably never would have been this real 
where there wouldn't at that time probably would have always happened eventually there wouldn't at that time have been the realization that there's all these great bands down in the south and that they can make it without changing the way they look or without moving to new york or los angeles they can make it from there but one of his failings is that you know alan walden wanted to sign skinner to capricorn and phil just refused you know he insulted him they came and played a uh uh, a uh, showcase in in Macon and Phil went there with some of the Allman Brothers members and Phil went up to Alan at the break and said your band stinks they sound <laughs> too much like the Allman Brothers the singer's not in tune mm-hmm. um, and of course it really had nothing to do with what Leonard Skinner sounded or looked like or anything it had to do with him putting his little brother down and absolutely not signing one of his bands and a couple of years later, he did the same thing with the Outlaws, uh, who Alan was also managing after Skinner had left them for Peter Rudge. Uh-huh. And that was such a downfall of Capricorn Records. I mean, they really could have cornered Southern Rock entirely. I mean, they could have had the Allman Brothers, Marshall Tucker Band, the Leonard Skinner and the Outlaws, who both of whom wanted to be on Capricorn. And uh, by the end of 74, the Allman Brothers are starting to fall apart for various reasons, all detailed in the book. And, you know, he could have had those two bands queued up and kept going. Right. Instead, it kind of led to the fall of his record company. So uh, that's an interesting sidelight to, to to this story as well. Yeah, and that's something I was not familiar with and I enjoyed in your book that, you're right, Capricorn could have completely conquered Southern rock music and it all comes down to a sibling rivalry as to why that never truly happened. Because Skinner did obviously benefit from what the Allman Brothers did before them. Southern rock was becoming marketable and you're right. They, their rise was pretty close to the the demise of that iteration of the Allman brothers band. And every one of those Southern rock bands, if I understood you properly in your book, they all wanted to sign with Capricorn. That, that was the top choice. Right. And so Alan, I guess was smart enough to come along and say, Hey, there's enough talent here that we can put together a pretty great roster of bands just from the Capricorn leftovers. Yeah, well, Al Cooper told me uh, that, you know, he went down, he was in Atlanta doing some recording, and he liked it down there, so he started hanging around, and he was going to the, you know, Fidocchio's, and he sees Leonard Skinner several nights in a row there doing this uh, residency, and he got up and he jammed with them, and then he got to know them a little bit, and he talked to them, and he found out that they had been rejected by Capricorn, and he couldn't believe it. I mean, if you can imagine, you know, walking into a bar and seeing Leonard Skinner um in 19 i guess it would have been 72 or or early 73 and and they're playing in this way that apparently they were you know they were just sounded like they did on their first album i mean they're completely polished ready to go and they're unsigned um you know that was what what al cooper said imagine walking into a dirty bar seeing the rolling stones and finding out they're unsigned so Yeah, he literally said, I was happy to start a label and just signing the bands that Capricorn didn't sign because they were dumb enough to not sign Leonard Skinner. God knows who else they didn't sign. Right. Uh, yeah, because yeah, so, Skinner just came out fully formed after all the time in the Hell House. Their, their debut album might be their very best work. And it's a little different from the Allman Brothers, who they got some attention early and they recorded in some different versions of the band, but didn't hit their peak until a few albums later. Whereas Skinner, for whatever reason, had more time to hone their sound and were completely ready to go when they were signed. 
Yeah, so the Allman Brothers band at the time of their formation had more experience than Leonard Skinner did at the time of their formation because, um, you know, Greg and Dickie had been out and already recorded two records with the Hourglass and Dwayne had done all that session work. Um, but they then recorded their debut album just a couple months after they were together. So they didn't really have that much experience together. Whereas Skinner had such a long road from when they formed uh, until they got signed. And I'm sure you and most people listening are familiar with their Muscle Shoals demos. Right. I mean, you know, sure, they're a little rough, but I mean, geez, they're pretty darn they're pretty good. good. And that was, <laughs> yeah, and the songs are great. I mean, the songs are the songs. And those are, you know, what, how many years before their debut album? Yeah, I mean, a couple years, yeah. Uh, yeah, so they were out there between then when it already sounded as good as it sounded uh, until they recorded that album, playing those songs live and just getting them better and better and better. So, um, yeah, they were absolutely just raring and ready to go when they recorded their debut. Yeah. And and what was interesting, and I, I didn't actually realize until um, I was writing this book, is that um, Pronounce Leonard Skinner and Brothers and Sisters came out probably the same day. It's it's oddly hard to find the exact um, release date. But anyhow, they came out roughly at the same time. And, you know, the big MCA record release party uh, at Richards in Atlanta for Pronounce Leonard Skinner was the day after Watkins Glen Jam. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, I, yeah. So I guess actually they were about two weeks before Brothers and Sisters, because that must have been when the album came out. Um, and that, and brothers and sisters came out two weeks later, but it was all happening at the same time. Now it took Leonard Skinner a little while to build up. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't a hit right out of the gate, no. but um, it started getting some traction. But you know, that was all happening at the same time. It's it's uh, pretty incredible. So you got Almond Brothers band playing with Grateful Dead in the band to what six hundred thousand people <laughs> right around the same time that Skinner had their their first album release party. That's amazing. Not right around the same time, the same, the time. same time, I mean, the <laughs> night before. And and what what is really impressive is that the writer, John Swenson, um, and to the best of my knowledge, he's the only person, uh, was at both. He was up oh, wow. at Watkins Glen and made it down to Atlanta for that. Uh, and John was a friend of mine. Uh, he's passed away. Um, unfortunately, I, I had no idea about that uh, when he was alive because I sure would have loved to talk to John about how the heck he did that. But um, I read his review of Watkins Glen in the Village Voice, and I read his writings on the, um, the Leonard Skinner party. So wow. um, here's John Swenson. What a guy. That's a hell of a couple of nights. Yeah, good for him. It's not that easy to get from Watkins Glen to Atlanta, although I'm, I'm sure. actually doing a similar <laughs> without without the 600,000 people. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to be in Atlanta on July 28th for a uh, book release party at City Winery, playing with the great End of the Line band, the Allman Brothers tribute band. Oh, nice. And I'm flying the next morning to Rochester, New York, and then driving down to Canandaigua, which I think is about an hour from Rochester, <laughs> to play at the 50th anniversary of Watkins Glen. Oh, wow. So I hadn't really thought about that till this moment. That's your but version I'm doing of that. the job yeah. in reverse. <laughs> but, um, but with that, with a lot, uh, uh, you know, I'm not coming out of 600,000 people in two days of mud and trash, uh, all that. Just heaps so. of trash everywhere. Yeah, it'll be a little more comfortable yeah. for you, I hope. A little more comfortable. Yeah, a little easier, but yes. So one of the things I love about that album release party we're discussing is that Skinner opted to open the show with working for MCA. And this was, I'm sure, in some ways, Ronnie's response to the absolutely horrible deal that he signed, which 
I didn't realize how bad it was until I read your book. Yeah. And and to put it a little bit in perspective, and I'm not lightning how bad it was. It was really bad. Um, they were all signing bad deals then. Yeah. You know, it wasn't uh, that unusual. And, you know, John Landau uh, is interviewed in the book because he was affiliated with uh, um, uh, Phil Walden and the Allman Brothers a little bit. And just two years later, he was produ- he was managing Bruce Springsteen. And I mentioned that because Springsteen had a terrible deal. I mean, his first manager, I think, took 50% of the money. And that's one of the reasons he got John Landau involved. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, oh, these dumb hicks were signing a bad deal. I mean, guys were signing bad deals everywhere. Bruce Springsteen signed his deal, you know, in the hood of a car in a parking lot. And it's, I couldn't believe it because I realized that Skinner did the same thing. They signed it on the hood of Alan Walden's car. <laughs> I think it was at the Making Coliseum. I mean, they just wanted to make music. And, and uh, one thing that I learned in this last interview I did with Gary that I had never heard or never seen anywhere. I, I don't know if this is known or not. It was news to me was that because they were minors when they first signed with Alan Walden, uh, their mothers had to, uh, her parents had a guardian had to sign the contract and Gary's mother, Bernice actually read it and said, no, this is a terrible deal. I won't sign it. And uh, Gary, this is his words. He said, I cried and whined for two days because <laughs> They just wanted to get out of Jacksonville. They just wanted to go play some gigs. And um, everyone else was signing it. Their parents were signing it. But, uh, you know, here's to Bernice. I mean, she must have been a pretty savvy woman. Uh, I don't know if she what she did professionally, if she ever had, you know, worked outside of the house or was a homemaker or whatever. But she was uh, pretty smart. She was the only one really <laughs> of anyone who, who read the contract and understood what was happening. Right. And Gary said he I don't whine for two days and just said, and she said, okay, but you know, it's against my better judgment. And I'm telling you, it's a bad idea. And he said, she did tell me a couple of years later when uh, Alan owned all our publishing and we were complaining about it. She, she said, I could, she couldn't help herself. And she said, I told, I told you, you sorry. <laughs> yeah. How could you not good for her for at least trying, but I agree with you completely yeah. that, you know, put yourself in their shoes. They've been working towards this goal for years. I think, I don't remember the exact quote, but in your book, Ronnie said something to the effect of, you know, well, if we don't sign this deal, what's the alternative? It's basically nothing. So let's sign the damn thing. I mean, most people would do that in their situation. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what the Allman Brothers did. That's what Bruce Springsteen did and and countless others. And um, in terms of the publishing, nobody really understood publishing. And it's not like in that moment, Ronnie Vance could have known that Freebird was going to be played for 50 years everywhere a million movies and TV shows and be loved by, you know, uh, people who were decades away from being born and was going to be worth millions of dollars. I mean, there, there was no way for any of them to know that. Of course not. Um, and, you know, and, and, and so they had no idea, even if they knew it was a bad deal, they didn't really understand the implications as, you know, most people would have when they were 17 anyhow. Right. So I want to segue a little bit to, some of the political discussion in your book. And I'll tell you just where I'm coming from with my podcast, just in case you haven't had a chance to listen to uh, all 40 episodes in the last couple of weeks (laughs) since we met Uh, just the off chance you haven't listened to it all. Uh, You know, I didn't start this podcast because I'm the world's biggest Skinner fan. And I just want to talk about how great Skinner is for me. It was my dad's favorite band growing up. I love them. I went and saw Skinner in the mid eighties, the reunited version 
as my first three concerts, you know, three summers in a row at Starwood Amphitheater in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I loved them. And then, you know, I became a teenager in high school and in college. And I was guilty of being the type of person who defined my personality around the type of music that I liked and that I thought was cool. And at that time, the people in my high school that loved Skinner, they were kind of the Confederate flag waving types that I had nothing in common with. So I was out on Skinner for years, almost decades. Um, and then, of course, you know, eventually went back and just listened to the music, which is great. And so that's kind of the point of this podcast is trying to reclaim the music while also addressing some of the troubling racist imagery from the past. And you talk about the Confederate flag in your book. And it's not just Skinner that performed in front of the flag. It was also the Allman Brothers Band. It was also Tom Petty. You and I both know that, but that doesn't come up very often. I think there are a lot of good reasons why Skinner still gets attached to that stigma more than the other bands, all of whom have denounced it at this point. But what is your take on that? I mean, what do you think those bands at the time, do you think they were even thinking about it or considering what that flag could mean? Because if you go back, well, if you look back, it's easy to blame them now. And you had a great quote in your book where, I think it was in 2015 that Greg Allman said, uh, if people are going to look at that flag and think of slavery, then I say burn every one of them. And that's the way I look at it. Yeah. And that's great. And I love that Greg said that. But that's decades after the time where these bands were waving that flag. Well, I, I think it, each of the bands probably has a little bit different take on it and perspective. And I'm I'm very familiar with the Allman Brothers side. I'm not super familiar with the Skinner side, so I'm not as comfortable addressing it um, but i would say that they were more associated with it because they kept using it for many years after the others sure um it, after people knew it was problematic <laughs> in the earliest days i don't think any of them thought much of anything about it um, i'm almost certain they didn't in fact um and it's interesting and worth noting that it was actually sort of record companies and marketing people who first started putting that in. Yes. Um, to the best of my knowledge and understanding, uh, you know, Al Cooper, first of all, when he did Sounds of the South, he made the logo a, a, um, like a log cabin. So that was interesting. I mean, gee, he was in Atlanta. He wasn't living in a log cabin. Now, Skinner didn't live in log cabins, but of course they did have Hell House. So you could <laughs> say not. it represents that. You know, yeah. which, which makes sense. But they weren't like living on the off on the farm, guys. And and, and neither were the Almond Brothers. And I, I make that point in the book elsewhere. I mean, they got they got this farm when they started to make money and they got horses. And then they realized they had no idea how to take care of horses. <laughs> yeah. They were all suburban and urban guys. I mean, Greg and Dwayne were from Jacksonville. Dickie was sort of the most cowboy, but he didn't grow up in the country either, really. He, he lived in Palm Beach and uh, Sarasota. So, um there's an element of play acting <laughs> to some extent with all of them, sure. I think. I mean, look, like I just said, Bernice read the contract. Bernice wasn't some backwoods hillbilly. Gary wasn't a backwoods hillbilly. Um, it's really not what their background was precisely. Um, somewhere along the way, to the best of my understanding, uh, somebody at MCA put a Confederate flag around the skull and crossbones that they had come up. They didn't do that initially. Uh, I'm not absolving them of using it all these years because they obviously embraced it. But I don't think they had the concept. I don't think they went out there saying, hey, let's wave the flag and make this our identity. Um, it became a bit of a marketing thing. That's definitely what happened with the Allman Brothers Band as well. 
their introduction of the Confederate flag came through Great Southern, which was their marketing company. Um, and when they went out and tour in 74, which was when they did the one show with with Skinner, um, they called it the Summer Campaign 74. And it was illustrated by a picture of Robert E. Lee on horseback holding up the Confederate flag. So um, that was the introduction of that for them. They had nothing to do with it. It was totally a marketing um, merch company thing. But again, that doesn't absolve them. I mean, they went out with it. Right. They, well, yeah. Any of if them could have said, wait, get rid of that. Uh, and they didn't. Um, they did that. And for that brief time during that tour, they actually did have a Confederate flag on stage. Um, and you could argue it was worse for the Allman Brothers. They had two black members, you know, <laughs> Jay and Lamar Williams. Right. Um, and uh, Lamar has passed away, uh, so I couldn't talk to him. But I, I did ask Jamo about it. And, you know, he sort of laughed. He said, I, you know, I didn't pay it. No, never mind. Um JMO sort of exists in his own JMO universe, mm -hmm. anyhow. Um, so it's not surprising to me. Um, uh, JMO is one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, he is, uh, in his own way, political. Um, he knows what's going on. He's very aware of current events. Um, but he just didn't really care about stuff like that. He got up and he played. Um, and he said, as far as I was concerned, as far as we were concerned, meaning him and Lamar, um, we were there for the music and the people coming were there for the music and whatever else was going on. We didn't pay any attention to. So uh, I just have to take him at his word. They only used it for those couple of years, uh, I think. And then they, after they broke up in 76 and they, they reformed, they never quite used it again. It certainly did end up being used with them, like, like promoters, uh, you know, things like that would, would have shows and they'd put a, a flag in there. So uh, you could find some stuff after that, but they never officially used it. Um, Greg, of course, as you said, forcefully came out very much against it later in his life. He was embarrassed by it. Um, Dickie, who most people think of as sort of a redneck, um, is really probably the most like politically liberal oh, yeah. <laughs> of all the guys in the band. Um, people are surprised to, to learn that. Um, I've never heard him comment on the flag either way uh he certainly is not supportive of of what it stands for um and and tom petty is a great example you brought up i mean he was doing that i think in 1985 um and and not only was it on stage but you can look up the pack up the plantation double album and open it up and you'll see what the stage looked like giant flag <laughs> behind the stage uh up there and he ended up you know regretting that and speaking about it so mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think you, you can't, you know, there definitely are people, uh, like you mentioned yourself when you were younger, maybe, you know, who were turned off by that right. and, and don't give these people a chance. And, um, you know, and then there's people who will get mad at us for having this conversation oh, and, yeah. and, you know, that's, is what it is. Um, and it's interesting what you said. I, I totally relate to that about the Skinnerd, uh, and you know, not with them per se, but I mean what you said about um, associating what you listened to by who else was listening to it. Right. And actually, it's one of the cool things about younger generations, like with my kids uh, who are now all in their young early twenties, but um, they don't really listen to music that way. They they like listen to things on streaming and playlists, and they don't associate it with a tribe now there's probably some exceptions you know my daughter went to see taylor swift and that's like a giant tribe sure. of, of young women mostly but yeah for the most part it's not in the same way like i had that same experience you're talking about with led zeppelin mm -hmm. 
Um, when I was in high school, I, I was slow to come around to Led Zeppelin until years later because, like in my high school, the guys listening to Led Zeppelin were like the burnouts, yeah. smoking cigarettes out by the smokestack and flipping cigarettes at you. And right. I was slow to come around to REM because the first time I ever heard them was these really sort of dorky art school kids with haircuts. Um, and, you know, I love Led Zeppelin and I love REM. So, um, I, I, you know, that feels stupid to me now. Yes. Like I, I, and I'm sure, that, <laughs> I'm sure if I would have gone out there and hung out with the kids at the smokestack or hung out with the arty kids listening to REM, I would have found a buddy or two anyhow. Had a good you know? time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's and, a foolish way to, that, to to look at music, yeah. and and I, I have young kids as well, and I hadn't thought about what you said. That you're right; I don't think it's as tribal as it was uh, when we were young, and that's that's great. Yeah, they they come across stuff streaming, um, and some sometimes it's kind of random. You know, mm -hmm. like I walk in, and one of my kids listening to uh, Hall of Notes or there's something I'm just like, what? It, it, but it just, it, it's on some playlists that they have. And if they like the song, they keep it in the playlist and they listen to it. And, uh, you know, I think that's great. Right. Just judging the art for its own merit and not by the, uh, the fans who, yeah, when I was younger, they could often turn me off of a certain band and I wouldn't even give them a proper chance. Yeah. And it can also happen when you do what I've been doing for the last, you know, decade. <laughs> yeah. Interviewing people. Sometimes you have a bad experience with someone. Oh, I bet. It's hard to like music. Uh, yeah, the Black Crows are the biggest example of that. I mean, I love the Black Crows, but um, af after uh, Southern Harmony on that tour, I had a really tense exchange with Chris Robinson. It blew up a cover story, and we almost got in a fist fight. <laughs> um, and I take some responsibility. Like, I look back at some of it, and I'm like, God, that was dumb. But uh, okay, I do need to hear that story. I'm not surprised that you had a blow up with Chris Robinson of all people. But I am a fan yeah, of Crows, well, and that ties into our Southern yeah. Rock thing. And Southern Harmony is my favorite album of theirs. So tell us what happened. Mine as well. Oh my God, you want to? You want me to tell you what happened? If you don't mind. Well, no, I don't mind. I just want to tell it as short as I can. Sure. Um, we were. So what year was that? Probably 93. Um, yeah. We were doing a cover story on the Crows. Guitar World, I was the managing editor at Guitar World. Uh, Guitar World was huge at the time. Um, I was writing the cover story. It was a really big deal for me um, because I was writing the cover story. And I, I was writing so much about like the Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner and blues guys, B.B. Uh, King, Albert King, Albert Collins, which was great as all the music I love. Um, but the sub wasn't the most commercial. So I wasn't like, getting cover stories that much and you know i did yeah. I, I did covers are dicky but you know the so the crows were so exciting to me because not only did i love their music but for a band of this playing the kind of music i love to be commercially viable made me like more uh current sure. viable you know yeah. it gave me some currency so just on that personal career level it was good for me so i was super excited about it loved the album and um, we had the whole agreement. I had nothing to do with it. At the time, Guitar World was huge. We sold a lot of magazines. We were actually sold the most magazines uh, on the new stand of any music magazine. Wow. Like We crushed Rolling Stone. Um, you know, we were selling hundreds of thousands of copies. And it made a big difference who was on the cover. You know, it could be the difference between like selling, uh, you know, 150000 and 250000 however much money that was, you know, a lot of money. Sure. So... 
I didn't get really involved in that. You know, my the editor did and the publisher. Um, he had worked out a deal with the Black Crows. They wanted a cover. They would do the cover, but it had to be Rich and Chris together on the cover because they were really concerned that Rich was too faceless, basically. And Chris is the face of the Crows, sure. and it won't sell. If you have Rich on the cover, people are just going to go, who's that? Yeah. If you have Rich and Chris, it says the Black Crows. Cool. The story would focus on Rich and Mark Ford because they're the guitar players. And just to make it make sense with Chris, I would talk to him and get like a quote or two to put it in the story. But basically, it's going to be a guitar focused story. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, all makes sense so far. I had nothing to do with those negotiations. That was between Brad Talinsky, the editor of Guitar World, and their publicist. But boom, it's all done. Um, I'm going to do the story. I go down to the Tower Theater in Philadelphia from New York City. Um, we flew in the photographer of their request, Paul Natkin, great photographer from Chicago, who they loved. He's all set up in the basement. We do the interview that afternoon. Um, we go down. Rich comes down. He does the photos. The idea was Rich was supposed to do some photos solo, and then Chris would come join him for the cover photo shoots because the photos of Rich would be for the inside. Yeah. It's there, Chris, no Chris, no Chris, no Chris. So we're in the bowels of the uh, Tower Theater. I go up to the dressing room and I'm like, Chris, come on. He's like, man, I don't want to do it. I don't play guitar. I shouldn't be on the cover. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Chris, I don't know, man. Like, I had nothing to do with yeah. this. This deal was made. It was all set. And he's like, oh, you know, I had this whole thing. So he's like, all right, all right. I'm going to come down. I'm going to come down. Give me five minutes or something. So. I go down and now this stuff would be easier because I would have called Brad. You know, I'm just on my own. And this was yeah. a big deal for me. There's like a cover story. I'm on my own. I'm alone down there. I have no way to reach anyone. We can't be texting or emailing the publicist and Brad and like, get you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we go down. I go back down to the basement and um, Chris comes down and he turns his back to the camera and he has... Um, taped on the back of his jacket. He's wearing like a velvet jacket. He has taped on his handwritten sign that says, I don't play no guitar. G-E-E-T-A-R. And it was funny. It was funny. So Paul snaps some pictures and then Chris turns around and walks out. And the the thought there, of course, is, okay, he made his point. Now he's going to turn around and do the photo. But he didn't do it. And uh, their manager, Peter Angelus, was there in the corner laughing. I mean, so I really it was all on him. No help. Uh, I, I didn't even know who he was at the, in the moment. He didn't introduce himself. He didn't get involved. Um, Paul Natkin told me afterwards. He was just some guy with them. I didn't know who he was. Um, Chris goes to walk out, and I, I almost hit him. I was so mad. I, I went to the doorway, and um, I grabbed him by his little skinny little arm that big <laughs> and I kind of pulled him back and he turned towards me and it was and then I saw the bodyguard coming at me wow. very very big guy he was coming at me with intent um and so I dropped his arm and I just said to Chris uh this is fucked up you should do this photo and he looked at me and he grabbed me in a friendly way, not an aggressive uh-huh. way. I kind of grabbed my shoulder and he said, I just can't do it, brother. And he walked out. Wow. And, um, uh, you know, I, again, I could see ways now as a, as a, as a guy with some more experience and stuff, I would have maybe handled some of it differently. Um, but, um, in the moment I was there, I was on my own. I couldn't talk to anyone else. 
and I was I was just devastated. I was I was so upset. Sure. I was so upset. I felt really abused. Um, you know, I, I I just it was it was ugly. And um, years later, just maybe five years ago, um, I did a live interview with Chris uh, uh, for for Backstory Presents, which is a uh, was a really cool live interview series that Brad Talinsky, same editor of Guitar World, uh, was running. Um, and I talked to Chris at length before the concert, before the uh, interview, and I brought it up. I asked him about because I didn't know if he a remembered it. Right. Uh, be you know it might have just been a Tuesday night for him you know <laughs> uh, if he remembered if he remembered it how he remembered it if he had any idea that I was the guy you know I had no idea so I said you know Chris I want to talk to you about something that happened a long time ago and he said oh the photo oh yeah he knew all about wow. it he absolutely knew and he was regretful and he said, you know, I handled that terribly, even though I think in principle I was right. And that was when things were at a real peak of um, w- when Magpie Salute was happening and yeah. and Rich and Mark were really, there was a, this, they were all slagging each other. Oh, yeah. And Chris said to me, you know, the irony is I was trying to protect the people who all hate my guts now. Well, that's what I was uh, going to ask. Yeah. Maybe he was just yeah. looking out for his brother the way, best way he knew how at the time, which was. Obviously, he he was. The truth is, what I realize now is that the the fault of that really was the publicist and the manager, um, because they probably didn't even tell Chris about it. Um, And so his reaction in the moment was, uh, no, I'm not going to be on a guitar magazine. He probably had absolutely no idea that this had been negotiated and agreed to. And um, so I I have a little more sympathy to him on that front now. But maybe not um from where you were sitting at the time though I, i'm sure that was a, a lot to deal with it was a lot to deal with and i i was um you know i felt like this huge sense of responsibility because brad went and did these kind of cover story things all the time and he had entrusted this one to me and i felt like i was blowing it although you know he was never mad at me he understood it and huh. um and paul Natkin, you know also got really screwed because he didn't get it. We didn't do make it a cover story. Yeah. You know, right. um, and, and he lost his cover and I've talked about it with Paul quite a bit. And uh, after, <laughs> after I'd had that thing with Chris, Paul told me that he had talked about it with Chris and Rich many times over the years. And they knew they were very, uh, so I, I should write about it. I had Chris, but Paul has the photos. I just got to figure out the right uh, venue. To- you should. And those guys would be willing to talk about it. So I, I should do that. It's an amazing story, and I'm glad we got to cover the Black Crows. We've kind of hit all the Southern rock legends. Those are probably the three biggest biggest ones, right, of all time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I put the Marshall Tucker Band in there, too. They're, they're up there. a little different. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, we're running out of time. I can't believe it. We're going to cut off in a minute. There's so much more I wanted to discuss with you. but Well, we can start a new one if you want. I'm, I'm okay to do it, but it's totally up to you. I, I mean, I'd love to, if you don't mind. I don't want to keep you forever, but yeah, it's fine. I have um the only thing is my dog is whining like crazy outside my door. Let me let her yeah. in and I might take her out quickly, but she should have time. to go up. Yeah, take your time. I'll end this one and, and start a, send a new invite. Okay, so you'll send an invite? Yeah, let me send you a new invite. And you can just join five, 10 minutes whenever you're able. Yeah, I just okay. know we're going to get cut off in the middle of yep. something. So I'm going to end this one and I'll send you a new invite. Thanks, man. Okay, okay, bye-bye.
cultural stuff with the flag and and everything else um i oh i wrote more originally and then i i doubled back and and reflected and had to just decide how deep to go and i was aware that there's you know parts of this that are going to annoy people people are going to be offended um it would be easier to just skip it really um because nobody will miss it if it's not there um, but it, it didn't feel right to me. I just really felt like if I was going into this era and writing about the Alma Brothers, it was something that had to be uh, addressed. And I, you know, I feel pretty good about the balance I struck. Um, Bob Beatty, who's a friend of mine, who just wrote a, a great book called Play All Night that's really focused on the Dwayne uh, era Allman Brothers band and especially um, Fillmore East album he is a professor he's he's he has a doctorate in history and writes about the allman brothers and lives in nashville grew up in florida and he is more adamant feels more strongly about tackling the um you know this side of this cultural side and the flag stuff especially than i do uh, and he pushed me. He was an early reader. He helped me with the book. He kept pushing me. He wanted me to do more and more and more. Um, I did less than, than he urged me to, but I just, it's, it's just like, uh, most of the things I do, um, with this, it's, 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 a it ultimately is a feel thing. So it's just what feels right. It feels like enough and not too much. And that, that's it. I mean, that, that was my push. There's no magic, um solution to how to do it and and you know i feel like i struck the right amount um but but i don't know i'm I'm sure i'm really curious to you know start getting feedback from people and i know some people will think it's not enough and some people will think it's too much i i ultimately can't worry about it. i just have to go with everything uh and and very much including this with my gut and what feels right and how much i'm interested in um my judgment usually is how much i would want to read if i was reading the book instead of writing it um you know that that's that's it it's just a feel thing and then some feedback from other people as well yeah i was basically asking because i wanted advice from you as i think about doing my podcast because I think you struck a perfect balance between covering these issues, which are a part of the band's history, but not going into too much detail to lose certain people who just want to read about this rock band they love. Yeah. Well, you know, the flag is is, is interesting. Bob, Bob Beatty, the guy I mentioned, knows more about the history of when the flag came to be used. And he feels really strongly about it. Um, he was, again, egging me on to put in more of that. And I, I just felt like at some point it's it's too much. I mean, um, I you know, I have all kinds of rabbit holes here where I go down different little things that aren't directly related to to the Almer Brothers band, but are they, they everything you know doubles back which is what i i love um so that was what i wanted to do and i i don't know you know i felt like i struck that that balance but it's just it's just tricky and um you you kind of know and you just feel a little when you go too far yeah no that that makes sense to me so i guess final question about skinner as as it relates to the allman brothers band I'm always curious, especially about Ronnie Van Zant, who was such a competitive person. Whenever they opened for a band, whether it was The Who or The Rolling Stones, I mean, his mission was to defeat that band, to blow them off the stage, to be better than them. And I know you, you haven't talked to Ronnie, but I wonder if you got a feel from any of the guys, Gary or whoever else, about how competitive they felt with the Allman Brothers Band or if they had any jealousy 
in the early days? Um, yeah, I didn't get that feeling directly. Um, it, it's it's in, an interesting thing about Ronnie and, and Dwayne, although I think there's some real differences in them and their personalities, but they both were absolutely the leaders of the band. And right. uh, they both were followed without question. They didn't really have to order people around because the way they spoke was essentially ordering people around. That, from what I gather, was just accepted. They didn't really, you know, they were the leaders. People listened to them and did what they wanted. Um, I, I never really had a, a, a huge sense of them being competitive with each other. Um you know, the Allman Brothers were so far ahead of them when they started. And gee, within a couple of years, they're just, re you know, revving up and starting to take off. And the Allman Brothers were fading. Um, and so from the Skidder perspective, I don't think they ever really had to worry about it. Um, I'm sure when their record first came out uh, and the Allman Brothers are riding high, their immediate thought isn't we're going to surpass them. Um, and then it just happened. And so by the time they probably started to feel like we should be better than them or be more famous than them, they were uh, almost. And um, I never really sensed with the Allman Brothers them having that feeling towards Skinner because I think they were probably super cocky and not paying that much attention at first. And then as Skinner was rising, they were so wrapped up in their own problems and foibles <laughs> that I don't think they were worried about it too much. I'm sure there were moments that as they were broken up and Skinner just starting to take off um, that they had some amount of jealousy, but I've never really heard it expressed. I've never heard anything uh, bad said about one another. Greg certainly liked Gary a lot. Um, you know, he was happy to be there at the, at the Skinner tribute in, in Atlanta. Um, you know, they liked having Gary play with them, which I think only happened once or twice. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of forget, but, um, you know, there was one point during the 2009, uh, 40th anniversary of Allman Brothers run at the Beacon where they had tons of guests and they ended up having Kid Rock and, a lot of people were not that happy. All my brothers fans about Kid Rock coming out, and the whole deal, the whole deal was, you know, at the time Kid Rock and Skinner had the same management, and it was sort of a package deal. They wanted Gary, and you know, Kid Rock really wanted to do it, so they accepted Kid to get Gary, and then Gary yeah, had some, Gary had some health problems and couldn't make it that that show, so they ended up ended up with Kid Rock. And not that's the Gary. worst deal since Skinner signed with uh, Al yeah, Golden. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So before we wrap up, I've, I've got to ask you, if you don't mind, how does someone who was, you, I think you were born in Alaska, you later lived in New Jersey, and then you lived in China, and now you are the preeminent scholar of the, on the Allman Brothers Band. You're deeply connected to the Southern Rock. So that might be a difficult one to answer, but what's that trajectory look like? Yeah, well, I mean, Atlanta, I mean, Alaska is a bit of an, an anomaly. I was born in Alaska. Uh, my family moved uh, to Pittsburgh when I was like uh, a year old. Um, my my parents, my dad was in the service in Alaska, um, and then they stayed up there for another year because they liked it. After he was out, they, they moved to Anchorage for a year. They'd been on a, a base in Sitka, Alaska. I was born in Anchorage. So um, it's a cool fact. It's on my passport. <laughs> it's in my Wikipedia page, which is probably where you got that. I don't. I, I, That's I'm, my deep I'm, research, yeah. It's very <laughs> yeah. bizarre that it's on the Wikipedia page, but, I, but kudos to whoever figured that out and put it there. Um, 
Yeah, so it's it's a bit of an anomaly. I don't have not I don't have any real deep Alaskan roots, but it's cool. I've always took pride in that, especially when I was a kid. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Yeah. That's really my background, and that's where I was when I first really got into the Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner. I mean, I was super into Leonard Skinner. I was devastated when the plane crash happened. Um, I was pretty young, um, too young to really process it as a you know anything other than just a horrible thing and it meant my favorite band wasn't around um I, I was really sad about it um i don't think i knew any details or anything that happened I just knew that this awful thing had happened um you know pittsburgh was always sort of a hotbed for leonard skinner i mean at some point uh mm -hmm. in leonard skinner 1991 i think it was era the manager that at the time told me that pittsburgh was like one of their best markets and always had been um, I don't know why, you know, that, that's a whole separate conversation. And I don't remember how I initially heard them. I guess they were just on the radio and stuff all the time, but I just really, really liked them. Um, and yeah, then I just connected. Yeah. The, uh, maybe it was my, my older brother loved the Almond Brothers and that's how I got into that. I, I don't really remember. Maybe I had some understanding of the relationship between Skinner and the Almond Brothers. I don't even know. Um, but how I became like an insider to it was just, uh, you know, I started working at Guitar World uh, when I was pretty young, and I liked this music. Nobody else was really that interested in it. And so I just made it my own, and I just started writing about it. Like I said, one of the very first things I wrote for Guitar World was a cover story for, for our sister magazine, Guitar School, on Skinner. I mean, um, this is 1991. I mean, uh, you know, hip guitar guys in New York were not into Leonard Skinner and the Almond Brothers. Right. So I was right. always an outsider, you know, but that's just what I loved. And so um, it, Guitar World was really popular and really big. And so I wrote about it. So the guys wanted to talk to me because I had a good <laughs> forum and I liked them. I wasn't making fun of them. I wasn't ironic. I truly loved them in the music. Right. Um, and then how I slipped into uh, being more of an insider rather than just a, a journalist writing about it all the time was really ultimately through my relationship with Kirk West, uh, who, who I had mentioned earlier uh, and whose interviews were so prominent in here. So that for me personally, Kirk's interview tapes, you know, being resurrected from the dead and playing such a big role in my book is perfect for me because of my relationship with Kirk. I mean, um, we just started working together. I met him from, you know, when he was working with the Almond Brothers and I needed some help with stuff, he would be the guy. And then um, we got to know each other. And then I ghost wrote a story for him where he sort of told his version of the history of the Almond Brothers. I went to his house. He lived in Chicago then, just before he moved to Macon, and um, spent three days in his basement smoking cigarettes and uh, looking at through boxes and boxes of photos. This is pre-internet, so none of these photos were readily available. <laughs> you know, it was just incredible. Yeah. Kirk had boxes. He had all this memorabilia. And... Um, we became really good friends. And so I started being backstage at the shows going really early. So, cause that was when I could hang out with Kirk. Cause once the show starts, he was really busy. Um, so I would go early. So I got to know the crew. They got to know me. I would be at the venue, but when the band arrived and so Dickie and Greg and those guys just got used to seeing me around. Um, uh -huh. I, I think initially, well, Dickie knew who I was because I was interviewing him for guitar world all the time. But, Greg, I was never sure to the end if he even knew who I was. He just knew I was someone <laughs> that was okay, that he recognized. He'd always say hi to me. Um, and I always thought it was a me thing. But uh, eventually I realized I talked to Buddy Thornton, who was the front of house guy and, and uh, for the Almond Brothers. 
did the other sound on the road in the in during this era in the mid seventies? And was their engineer? He engineered brothers and sisters. He engineered laid back. And um, buddy told me Greg never knew his name <laughs> the whole time. He, worked. <laughs> he always forgot. <laughs> so okay, well, that was just Greg. But um, yeah, they just got used to seeing me. And so then when I would actually sit down and interview them every year or a couple of years. Um, it would be a little different, you know, and I would use some of the inside information I had from Kirk to sort of pepper my questions and I could get to a deeper spot with them. And they enjoyed that because, you know, they did a lot of interviews, especially Greg, who was always on the road, um, either with the Allman Brothers or his solo band for decades, would do these interviews with a reporter, you know, in, in Pittsburgh one night, Philadelphia, the next, Buffalo, Cleveland. And a lot of times these sort of daily newspaper reporters, um, some of them are fantastic, but some of them are just, you know, it's a job. And so they don't necessarily have any real knowledge or interest in the Allman Brothers. Um, they have to, you know, do write about who's coming to town. So they would get the same questions all the time. So th to do an interview with someone like me who had this sort of arcane knowledge and information that was interesting to them, they'd perk up. Um, so that helped me there. And then uh, once you get there, you start knowing more and more arcane information. <laughs> it just sure. builds. So builds. by the time I wrote One Way Out, my first Allman Brothers book, I had been doing that for 25 years. Um I, it wasn't like I set out, oh, I'm going to spend 25 years to research a book. It wasn't that at all. I mean, it was only the last couple <laughs> of years I started being, hey, I should write a book. I was sort of slow to the real, realization that I was sitting on this gold mine um, and, and sort of pulling it together. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't set out to spend 25 years doing that. But on the other hand, if I hadn't, I couldn't have done it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you did it the honest way. You gradually earned their trust. Yeah. They knew that you knew your shit. And yeah, that grows over time. Yeah, the next exactly. thing you know, <laughs> you're exactly. the expert. And, and so I was the expert. And then the book came out. And then I was really the expert. And then people talked yeah. to me more. Uh, I got frustrated sometimes in writing Brothers and Sisters because I would try to look up a fact of something or find some date or something. or And I start doing research and I realize um, all the sources of information online and stuff come from my book <laughs> one way out, yeah. <laughs> which is great. Just researching your own material. It's very yeah. flattering, but also it can be a little frustrating <laughs> because, uh, you know, I know a lot, but I don't, nobody knows everything. Yeah, um, of course. But um, yeah, so it, it's cool. It's an honor. It's, it's sort of unusual. And um, yeah, that, that's where I am. That's great. And and I know that Allman Brothers Band, that's not that's not all you do. You wrote a book about Stevie Ray Vaughan, which is another New York Times bestseller. All right. So tell us where we can we can look for your I know you're you're about to be a very busy man. Yeah. Um I know you're doing a lot of book release uh, signings and you're you're obviously playing some yeah. shows. So if we want to go check you out, where do we go? Well, a couple of places you can go to my website, alanpaul.net. Um, I keep that pretty updated, certainly with my appearances and stuff. And I have a really active Facebook uh, page, just okay. Alan Paul author. I think if you just if you go to Facebook and look for Alan Paul author, um, I keep that up to date, day to day. Uh, and it's by no means just about me. I mean, I, I share tons of fun music stuff on there all the time. Um, but for the next few months, it will be more about me than it is normally. And then eventually it will yeah. settle back. I got a lot going on. I'm going to be in Atlanta, Macon, Pittsburgh, New York, Pauling, New York, Denver. Um, and, and as I'm doing all that, of course, I'll be sharing it and I'll be sharing links to great podcasts like this as I do things and they come up. Cool, man. Well, have fun with it. And seriously, it was an honor to talk to you about Allman Brothers and Skinnerd. You're incredibly knowledgeable. 
And thanks for sending me your the Brothers and Sisters book in advance. It was amazing. Great read. So I recommend it to everybody out there. Um, so yeah, man, thanks for your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for your time. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks. That was fun, man. Yeah. If you need anything else, drop me a line and just email okay. me or whatever. I'm around. Cool, man. Yeah, this is really great. I appreciate it. Thank you.